Amen. All right. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin, uh, one of the elders here at the church. If I haven't met you yet, it's good. We're glad you're here today to sing to our Jesus together. We're walking through the book of Exodus. Uh, we're just going to continue to walk through that today, looking at the ten plagues. Uh, Pastor Danny was just up here playing uh, the guitar. He was preaching last week. Didn't he do a great job last week with the word? Man, it was good. Encouraging to be able to sit and hear and receive. Um, and man, we are excited to walk into this next portion of the text. But I'm just excited in general because I've got to tell you, this is my favorite time of the year. Day, the days are getting longer. They're getting brighter. They're getting warmer. Aslan is on the move. Can I get a witness from the congregation? It's my daughter's birthday this week. Her, she's one year old. Uh, it's my birthday in a couple weeks. I'm like 29 and a half. Um, I, and big presents come my way. You can send them here to the church. But mostly, mostly I love this time of year because of the sports. Uh, specifically, my, my favorite sporting event in all of sports is March Madness. And it's upon us. Part of the beauty of the March Madness format is the way you, you play your opponent one time. Winner moves on, loser goes home, right? And so because of that, uh, that anything can happen in one game. One guy gets hot, there's an injury, someone fouls out. A, there's, you could have a fluke loss like Duke. Every time Duke loses, it's just a fluke, right? We're always the best, just weird things happen, right? Uh, so one and done, uh, it, it allows for more upsets, uh, more Cinderella's, or some little college out of North Dakota, the college of sheep herding, uh, can, can knock off a powerhouse like North Carolina, Wait a second, they didn't make the tournament this year, did they? That's sad. Where's Lori? I had to... College, the, 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 the it's one and done, but when you go to the pros, it's different. It's a seven-game series where you actually have to win four games to advance. And so what happens is there's less upsets that way because you've got to beat your team, the opponent uh, four times. And, and so what we're going to see... As we look into the next portion of the story of Exodus, we're going to see ten plagues. We're going to have a ten-game series between Yahweh, the God of gods, the God of Israel, and the gods of Egypt. And this will be no one-and-done fluke. We have a ten-game series that's going to leave no doubt as to who the better team is. No doubt who the true God is. So get out your brooms because it's about to be a sweep. 10, 0. We're going to look at the plagues this morning. And first of all, we're going to look at why would, did God send these plagues in the first place. Got some fill in the blanks in your bulletin. You're welcome to join along with us. We'll have the verses on the screen for you in the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Uh, A.W. Tozer wrote one of the most important books, in my opinion, outside of the Bible. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. because It just unpacks who God is. And, and, and he says in his introduction to his short masterpiece, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important things, so we should probably dial into that, about me, about you, is what we think of when we think of our God. Or I could summarize it in a different way to say the most important thing in our lives is to know God is God. And Danny did a great job last week unpacking that in, in last week's text. Now, this is not just to, on paper, say, yeah, I give assent to God being God. This, this means to live like it's true. That the, every facet of my life is lived out in reality of God being who he says that he is in his word. Now, why did God send these plagues upon Egypt? Well, he says over and over in the story of the plagues exactly why he sent them. Look at this. He says, here's how you'll know I am the Lord. 
so that, why am I sending the plagues? So that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. That you may know that I, the Lord, am in the land. Then you'll know there's no one else like me in the whole earth. To show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. To, so that you will know that the earth belongs to me, the Lord. So that you may tell your son, your grandson, your great-grandson, your great-great-grandson. How severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them. Why? And you will know that I am the Lord. He could not have underlined this more if he tried. So why is knowing that God is God the most important thing in our lives? So he wants to show us that in this story. The first thing we see is that our gods will fail us. Our gods will fail us. This is super important to understand. Um, this, there are specific gods uh, that, that are being targeted from that, that Egypt worships here in this story. Because it can feel kind of random, right? Like, why is God sending gnats and, and hailstorm and frogs? Like, what, what, why are these things specifically? Well, Egypt actually had a ton of gods, over 2,000 gods, very polytheistic uh, culture. But they were clustered around these three major forces uh, of life, uh, the river, the land, and the sky. So just take, for example, uh, the first plague, uh, turning the Nile into blood. Uh, the, the Nile River was very much the lifeblood, if you will, of uh, Egypt's civilization. Uh, it transported goods. The things that they got imported were all coming up the river at the time. Uh, it was irrigation for their crops. It was water supply and... One of their major food supplies was fish that the Nile also provided. Now we saw that as, the, as it would flood annually, that got pretty much the only fertile topsoil um, that they had in the land. Without this, without this river, they would be just in a, in a desert of death. They would not have been able to survive. So it's not that surprising uh, that they worshipped uh, the Nile River itself uh, as the creator and sustainer of their life. And they had three central gods associated with the Nile River, Osiris, Nu, and I like to call him Happy. And what we see, they're actually, they had praise songs, just like we were singing to Jesus. Like they have praise songs. Here's one of their ancient praise songs to happy. Hail your countenance, happy. I was thinking we could have sang a, a clap along if you feel that happiness is my God. Don't. I asked Danny about singing that one. He's like, no, we're just singing songs to Jesus today. And like, whatever, Danny. So um, what we see is, is their, their worship of this God. And, and when, when God turns, or these gods, when God turns the Nile into blood, he is exposing their idolatry, right? There's, there's, there's justice being done for them worshiping a false god and also showing he's more powerful than their gods. And with one blow, what does God do? He brings water shortage to the people. He brings food shortage. He shuts down their entire import-export system. It's spiritual and physical uh, chaos. He's, 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 this plague is a direct attack on the Egyptian gods, proving they didn't have the power to meet uh, the Egyptian needs. In Latin, the word plague is the, is the word for a blow or a wound. And like we said in this 10-game series, God is delivering blow after blow, and he's going to deliver the knockout punch to, to leave no doubt as to who the true God is. He floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee, right? Now, e Egypt had a different God for every facet of their lives, thousands of gods, but what God here is saying is, I am the one true God, the God over all gods, the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, 
Now, you might say, isn't this a little severe, though? Like, a little extreme? Why did you need to do this? Couldn't you just, like, put that together in a PowerPoint? Like, why did you have to bring all this destruction? Well, first of all, we need to remember that, that Egypt was one of the most oppressive uh, superpowers that we see in the story of the Bible. Uh, so much injustice as they're enslaving the Israelites, killing or murdering the Israelite people. So there's a sense in which this is just divine justice and judgment. But it's also an act of mercy and grace. Because the most important thing, not just for Israel, but also for Egypt, was to see how futile their gods were. And God in his infinite wisdom, and he knows what measures are necessary to get that point across. And this is also man, this is painfully relevant for us today. Because we worship the same gods, we just give them different names. Uh, it wasn't a sin for the people to depend on the Nile for life, right? God gave that to them. But what it was sinful was to call it a god and make it ultimate in their life, to put their ultimate trust in this false god. It is not a sin to invest in a 401k or in the stock market. What is sinful and foolish is to put ultimate security in that. It's not sinful to desire a spouse, or maybe if you're in a relationship, the desire that to be a healthy marriage. But what becomes sinful and foolish is when we look to that relationship to save us and to bring us happiness. And oftentimes, it is the kindness of our God to say, I love you, but I need to show you that that God will fail you. And oftentimes, we see that in our lives. How do you know if you've been worshiping a false God? Um, one, one, of the, one of the ways, I think, that God identifies these, go these false gods in our life is threatening to take them away or actually taking them away. So maybe this last election cycle, your party did not get voted in. Now, it's one thing to be sad, but if we see ultimate despair coming out of our hearts because of that, there, we might need to do a heart check there of, of, of what, who we're bowing the knee to. I mean, is God still God if Joe Biden is in office? Is God still God if whoever comes next is still... If, if we have a fascist dictator overseeing us, like what we see here in Egypt with Pharaoh, is our God still God or not? And we, have to see, we do this with everything in our lives, right? How quickly we see how dependent we are. Like, go one day with fasting from food, and you'll see how hangry you get so quickly. And we, our comforts and pleasures... When we're in a season where sex is not on the table, when, when, we, when we had a vacation dream that fell through, what about in relationships? We see the codependence we, we, codependency we have on other people when that relationship is threatened to be taken away or maybe actually taken away from us. And financial security as we experience inflation or a stock market crash. But God in his tender but tough grace, he's showing us, man, your God's will fail you but he says I need you to know that I will always be faithful and, and our God listen is the only place that we can put our trust that will never disappoint us he says your way your gods will fail you the second thing he needs to show us in the plagues is that your way leads to death it's a story of decreation we see how God is targeting specific Egyptian deities, but why specifically this way? Couldn't he have just written in the, star, the sky, like, God, greater sign, happy, 
right? Like, why, why couldn't he just teleported uh, e- uh, Israel up from Egypt and over into the land of Canaan? Why this way? What's interesting here is God is disrupting the natural order here in Egypt, actually turning nature against the Egyptians. In fact, you could, you could say that it looks like creation in reverse, and a lot of scholars, they, they show the parallels here between the cre- creation narrative at the beginning of Genesis and the decreation we see here through the plague. Just kind of briefly walk through this. What, what happens on day one? God said, let there be light. And there was light. But what happens here in the plagues? There's three days of darkness. Day two, he, cre- he separates the water from the sky. But what happens here? The water of life becomes blood of death. And out from the sky falls hail that destroys. Day three separates the water from dry land and what pops up? Plants that are flourishing and giving life. But here in the plague, we see locusts that are destroying their crops and plant life. And day four, he makes these two great lights and brings order to the earth. But here again, we see things descending into darkness and chaos. Day five, we see the Genesis says that the sea would swarm with living creatures, the fish. And that the skies would swarm with the birds of the sky. And interestingly here, again, we hear that swarm language. But this time it is frogs swarming the land. And people are stepping on them and killing them. And the fish are dying in the water. This time it's a swarm of death, not of life. And then day six, we see the land animals and and human, human beings being created. But here in the plagues, we see the gnats, we see the flies and the boils afflicting both man and beast and the death of their livestock. And then just like the culminating moment of creation was Adam and Eve, the creation of human life, here, what is the culminating plague in plague number 10 is the death of the human firstborns. I think God is trying to show here that I alone am the Lord, he says, of all all creation, and that it is only my way that leads to what I intended back in creation, life and blessing and flourishing. He created humans and plants and animals to what? To multiply, to fill the earth with abundance and life and and, and a flourishing, to to enjoy his creation with him and for us as humans to rule over his creation under him. But when we turn from God's way, what do we do? It's a reversal of creation that the blessing gets reversed into a curse, that, that light descends into darkness, that order becomes chaos, and life reverses to death. Now, how do we do this? We do it the same way that we're seeing here uh, with the Egyptians. We take the good things of God's created order and we turn them into ultimate things. In fact, the most helpful way I've heard an idol described is that when we make a good thing, so we take a good thing that God's created and we make it an ultimate thing, We put it above where it's supposed to be in God's created order. And when we do that, ironically, it becomes a destructive thing. The very thing that we prop up to give us life and happiness becomes destruction and chaos. We said sex is a good gift. It's a good gift from God. But I've seen in my own life, when I made it a God of my life, and I became addicted to pornography... And it destroyed. It destroyed me inside, the shame and guilt and hiding from other people. It broke relationship. It broke trust in ways that I'm still having to walk out to this day. When we take food, food is a good gift. But when we, when we look to it to make us happy, I think sneaky ways that we don't even understand. We, make it, we become gluttonous. We see the way that obesity destroys us. 
We see the way that alcoholism destroys us and other relationships. Technology is a good, good gift. But when we medicate on that idol for ultimate comfort, and we see the video game addiction that is running rampant in our society, the way we are addicted to these little rectangles in our pockets, God wants to show us here, your way leads to death, destruction, and chaos. My way and my way alone leads to life. See, the best thing for us, guys, is to know that God is God and that his way alone leads to life and blessing and flourishing. What we're going to see here with Pharaoh, he's a perfect case study at what happens when we reject that notion that God is God and we try to prop ourselves up as a God. God is going to fire 10 warning shots across Pharaoh's bow. So the question now becomes, if the reason for the plagues was to know God is God, how does Pharaoh respond to the message in the plagues. I see three principles in the text. The first one is that Pharaoh echoes God's wonders. Look at, look at the, uh, in the first plague, Exodus 7. It says, There was blood throughout the land of Egypt from the Nile River. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Same thing in plague number two. When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up and covered the land. But... The magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs into the land of Egypt. Now, starting with plague three, they're no longer able to match God. But for the first two, they basically say, anything you can do, I can do the same-ish. I can do anything kind of the same as you. But I love, I love here how they go, oh yeah, you turn our water into blood, we can turn our water into blood too. And you made... Frogs swarm all over our land. We can make frogs swarm all over. Like, wouldn't they use it to make their water clean and to, like, get rid of the frogs? Like, God's like, I want to punch you in the face. Or, like, we could punch ourselves in the face, too. Right? Like, foolishness. Pharaoh here is, what's he trying to communicate? I don't need God. Why? Because I have all the things that God says he's offering already. That I can do all the things that your God claims to be able to do. And don't we do the same thing all the time? That we echo to God, uh, we don't, I don't need you. Like, I, I, I'm, I need to prove to myself that I don't need God because I don't want to be accountable to my God. Accountable to somebody outside of myself. And so we might say, I don't need an all-knowing God that I've got this little rectangle here that can tell me everything that I need to know in this life. I don't need an all-powerful God. I'm in control of my own life. I have a diet plan. I have a schedule. I listen to a podcast on parenting. I got this whole thing figured out, right? I don't need an everywhere God because I've got frequent flyer miles and I can vacay when and where I want to. Thank you very much. Like Pharaoh's magicians, if I can do all these God things, then I can continue to live however I stubbornly want to. Pharaoh echoes God's wonders so he can still be God. And the next thing we see is that he evidences worldly sorrow. He evidences worldly sorrow. Now notice here, Pharaoh, if you're familiar with this story, he keeps changing his mind. Okay, the people can go. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. And it's just this whiplash. I mean, it's like high school relationships that break up and get together like 10 times before lunch break. You've been there, right? I can't stand you. I can't live without you, baby. I love you. I hate you. It's just chaos, right? In fact, it, 
twice here, it sounds like Pharaoh is actually responding well to the call. Like he's, he's almost like he's walking down the aisle and getting saved. Look at this. In plague number seven uh, with the hail, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I have sinned this time, he said to them. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Make an appeal to the Lord. There has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. That sounds positive, right? Same thing in the next plague. Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to the Lord your God. But it almost sounds like Pharaoh got saved. Like maybe he's going to go out and worship God in the desert with the people. But notice the quick pivot he makes in each of these plagues. Back up to the hail plague. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. He did not let Israel go, as God had said to through Moses. Same thing with the plague of locusts. Then the Lord changed the wind, strong west wind, carried off the locusts, blew them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. And what happens? But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the Israelites go. So what do we see with Pharaoh? Now, once his circumstance changes back, so does Pharaoh. And this is what Paul describes in the New Testament as worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. This is so helpful to me. In 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Godly sorrow brings, what? Repentance. Repentance means to turn or to change. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, to rescue, and leaves no regret. That's the good life. But, he says, worldly sorrow brings death. So what's the difference? Worldly sorrow, we see here with Pharaoh, is, it means I'm sorrowful. I'm sorry, what? That I got caught, right, a lot of times. Or I'm sorry, I'm sorrowful that things aren't going my way. But there's not an actual heart change and there's not a turning to God. This can come out in emotional manipulation. With our, we're just trying to change the narrative and so we're going to evidence sorrow. Or maybe it's an attempt for us to preserve ourselves, self-preservation, which ironically just leads to death and destruction. And Pharaoh, I see here, he wants God to rescue him from the bad things. Look at what he says. Please forgive my sins. Make an appeal to the Lord your God. Why? So that he will just take this death away from me. And I don't like these plagues. I don't like what they're doing to me and my people. He's, he wants to be rescued from the bad things, but he's not turning to God. Notice here he says, to the Lord your God. Pharaoh has yet to make that his God. And I do this all the time. But I'll confess to God when circumstances are bad. But as soon as they start to get good again, I'm back on my own. And I remember this, the cycle I had with the sin of lust. Like, it was like, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you just take this death away from me? Would you just rescue me from this? But then there was no life change. And the next day when my conscience was alleviated and I was kind of back in action, I went right back to it. See that in my relationship with food. Like when you're bloated and you feel awful and you weigh over eight, you're like, all right, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it right tomorrow. I'm going to evidence self-control in my life. But then the next day when you don't feel like you're going to throw up, you go right back to it. That's the same heart issue. It's the exact same heart issue. Salvation doesn't come from just wanting to be rescued from life going the way I don't want it to go. It comes from repentance and turning to the living God in trust and obedience. 
Pharaoh evidences merely worldly sorrow. And then the third thing we see here is that he exhibits a hard heart. Fourteen times in this passage we see that infamous expression that Pharaoh's heart was hard. And this word, and Danny did a great job kind of unpacking that, that last week, but the word really, it, it, the, the root word, it means heavy, and it's the exact same root word. So he had a heavy heart. It's the same word in Hebrew that, we, that, that they use for glory, a weightiness, a, a heaviness. And so here we see Pharaoh weighed down by a concern for his own glory and not the glory of the one true God. And what does Jesus teach? We cannot serve two masters. Either God is God or I am God, but we can't have it both ways. And we see this clearly in, in verse 3 of, of chapter 10. Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh said, this is what the Lord says, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to what? Humble yourself before me. Let my people go so that they will worship, they may worship me. I am God. I am the one worthy of worship. But Pharaoh says, no, I'm going to keep them here so they can what? Worship Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh attempts to continue to exalt himself in the process, he has dehumanized the Israelites. He's, he's put them into slavery, and then he's even murdering these image bearers of God. And this is the same thing that happens with our pride, is as we start to try to elevate ourselves, pushing ourselves up to get up, I need to push other people down in the process. Now, maybe we don't own slaves, and maybe we're not murdering people, but we do this in subtle ways every, I do this subtle ways every single day. As I start to think disparaging thoughts about other people, I start to subtly talk some smack about them. What am I doing? I'm putting them in a negative light in hopes that I will look in a better and better light. But where this leaves us is an island. Pharaoh's going to find himself all by himself at the end of this story in darkness, destruction, and eventually we'll see in a couple of weeks, death. And the reality that our Bible teaches us is if we follow the way of Pharaoh, that's exactly our destiny as well. And there's a tension here. If you've read this story... Uh, you've probably felt this tension of like, oh, wait a second. Like, you even just read a little bit ago, Justin, like, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but then Pharaoh also hardens his own heart, so which one is it? Does, does Pharaoh harden his own heart, or does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the text actually says, yes. <laughs> it's, it's both. What we see here is both happening. Um, that, and, and what's interesting, if you map the, the, uh, the progression here, the first five plagues... It's Moses, hard, or excuse me, Pharaoh hardening his heart. But in the second five plagues, you start to see the language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, man, here we're trying to reconcile what we've been debating for millennia, the free will and sovereignty uh, tension. But what I see here in this text is God has given Pharaoh five chances to let his people go. But he reaches this point of stubborn no return. But here's what's so amazing. The all-powerful, all-knowing God bends Pharaoh's evil toward his own glorious purposes, just like he said he would to Moses back at the burning bush. And, he, and he, this comes out in, in chapter 9. He says, however, I've let you, Pharaoh, live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Pharaoh has been stubbornly trying to make his own name known, show his own glory. But God says, I will use that very pride to show the world my glory and make my name known. God here is not being cruel to Pharaoh. He's giving Pharaoh what 
Pharaoh once. And God always does that for all of us. Romans 1 tells us this. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts. He says, ultimately, what you want, I will give that to you. And here it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And this is what Pharaoh did. He worshiped and served what has been created himself instead of the creator who is praised forever and ever. Amen. So God says there's two options. In the end, if, if you want my will, I will give it to you. And if you want your own will, I will give it to you. It's a haunting thought. And we see the, our Bible's teaching us that it's not too late for anybody until, we're on our, uh, until after our deathbed. But I, I see from my own life experience and, and the history around me that, man, life is a long obedience in the same direction. And the more that we harden our hearts, the harder repentance becomes. See here, I, I, I'm, I'm reading this story and I'm going, like, Pharaoh, you're an idiot. Like, You've just seen 10 plagues. Like, think about what he has just witnessed of the, the hail and the darkness and the, and the death and the water turning into blood and all, all these things. And still at the end of these 10 plagues, you still have a hard heart. Like, you still won't acknowledge that God is in control here and that you should obey him. What a fool, right? 10 games, no fluke, no doubt as to who God is. His hard heart remains. But this is the reality in our lives as well. We can be given all, in fact, we have been given all the evidence in the world that God is God. And often we still see a hard heart remain hard. And Philip Ryken says this in a stark way, but I think it, it cuts to the quick. He says, God has already provided more than enough evidence to persuade anyone, anyone to trust him. That's a polarizing statement, is it not? He says, the beauty of his glory is declared in the heavens. The gift of his grace is published in his word. The power of his love is shown through his people. Anyone, anyone who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ cannot honestly say that God has provided insufficient evidence. Romans 1 tells us they are without excuse. What we see the Bible teaching is there's nobody who responds to the light level they have been given about who God is. Whether that's the created order or whether that's his word whether that's the gospel lived out in the life of a believer in front of them, our hearts reject the evidence in front of us every time. Now, he goes on to say, the unbeliever's real problem is not intellectual, it's spiritual. What is needed is a change of heart. Hardness of heart, he says, is a cardiac condition that can only be treated by a complete transplant in which the Old hard heart is replaced with a soft new one that is made right in God's sight. How? By grace and grace alone. So I want you to hear the nuance here. God invites us to ask hard questions. Like maybe you come in today skeptical of this whole thing, that you're not sure that you can rely on this Bible that's really, really old, or I've got a lot of doubts with the problem of evil and suffering and things that I've experienced. Like God wants us to ask the hard questions, full stop. But at the end of the day, we see what we want to see. We desire what we want to desire. We believe what we want to believe. And as sinners, we don't want there to be any other God than ourselves. We do not want to be accountable to anybody else but ourselves. The problem is that we were born with these hard hearts that reject God as God. 
And without God sending a better Moses to rescue me out of that miry clay, I have no more hope than Pharaoh did. But brothers and sisters, he did send a better Moses. And the landing place that we see is the whisper of these plagues points to the reality of Jesus in the midst of these plagues. You see, Moses came with these signs, these signs that destroyed, these signs that, that brought death and judgment. A couple thousand years later, another man came with some signs. But this time they were positive signs for the most part. But the first plague was turning the water into what? Blood. And what was Jesus' first sign in the Gospel of John? Once again, we have water turned into something red. But this time it's much better to drink than blood. It's wine, right? right? Except for the Baptists, maybe they're not sure about that, but that's okay. In the world, in, in the, through the plagues came chaos and destruction. But what did Jesus do? He calmed the raging sea. That, that in the plague, the, the Nile turning to blood brought death to the fish. But Jesus took fish and he multiplied them to sustain the needy people all around him. That we see in the plague, the boils on their skin. But what did Jesus do? He came and touched the leprous man and healed him. That the plagues brought death and destruction and darkness, but Jesus came to bring light and life to the world. Just like Moses, the signs that Jesus brought were rejected. And ultimately, he said, the sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. That was to say that for three days, like, like Jonah descended into the belly of the whale, I will descend into the darkness of death. And this time, it wasn't just the Gentiles, the Egyptians, but it was Jesus' own people that also rejected him with hard hearts. But just like with Pharaoh's hardness, God had a plan to brilliantly use that very rejection for his own glorious purposes. And Peter preached about it in Acts 4 when he said, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, everybody assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God, to do whatever, check this out, your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Human beings who had hardened their heart against Jesus and wanted to kill him and did kill him. But God used that very hard-hearted rejection and killing of his firstborn son to bring life so that we could be called sons and daughters of the king. God will go to any length for us to know that he is God. In the ninth plague, there are three days of darkness. And what happens at the end of the three days of darkness? The tenth plague involves the substitution of a Passover lamb who is slain so that God's people can be set free. And Christ, our Passover lamb, is crucified and experienced three days of darkness and separation from his God. But on the third day, as we are about to celebrate in two weeks, God raised him from the dead so that his people could be set free. But the problem with Pharaoh was that he saw all the evidence, all the signs, and still hardened his heart. We have the greatest sign that has ever been given. Jesus is alive. Like nobody has ever been able to dispute that or re refute that. And many, many have tried. <laughs> like he's alive and you can't say to the contrary. And yet, and yet, we still have hard hearts that refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. And that's why the good news is that Jesus came to give us exactly what we needed 
a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36 points us toward this in this new promise that God was going to give to us in Christ. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new set of desires, a new will. I will put in a new spirit into you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. How is he going to do that? He says, I will put my spirit in you, my very life force into you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. He removed our old disobedient hard heart and replaced it with a new one, the very life of Jesus Christ himself in us that says, thy will be done. Jesus is the only remedy for a hard heart. He's the only one that can bring humility to the arrogant. He's the only one that can lift up the heavy laden, whether it's in our own pride or whether we are downcast. He's the only one that can lead us to genuine, godly repentance that leads to salvation and no regret. Let me ask you this morning, you and your God, this is heart work, is your heart hardened before him? Now, are you, ask it this way, are you more concerned with your own glory than with God's? Now, we've got to do some heart probing here to look at this. That some of us, it's, it's the arrogance of thinking, I'm too good, I've kind of got this, I don't need God. The gospel humbles us and reminds us that there is only one who is holy, and it is not me. I deserve nothing but the plagues of death that Egypt received. But then for a lot of us, we're also struggling on the other side of the pride coin, and that's insecurity. That we're racked with fear. That we live in a a world that feels out of control, and we don't trust our God to be the God that he says he is in his word. And that we think we're beyond the rescue of this sovereign, providential God. And both of those, the the fear of insecurity or the arrogance of, of, of the pride of arrogance, are both a preoccupation with self and an unbelief and a distrust that God is God. But the gospel tells us that we are neither too bad for the gospel, nor are we too good for it. The gospel says that we are actually more sinful than we can ever know. And yet in Christ, in the shed blood of the Passover lamb, we are more accepted in him before the Father than we will ever be able to grasp or comprehend. You see, our, the darkness that we were born into descends into nothing but death on our own. But because the Passover lamb that we'll look at next week was slain in, on our behalf, we can be raised as new people. That we can be given new responsive hearts that can trust and obey our God with Christ in us, the hope of glory. But not only do I get to receive that, but I have this awesome job now here on earth to go into the world and tell the world lovingly but truthfully, your gods will fail you. Your way only leads to death and disappointment and despair. But there is a God who loves you. There is a God who gave his son for you to rescue you from the plagues of sin and death. To reverse the curse. And the most important thing that the world can know is what we need to know. That God is God. Would you pray with me? Father, God, your word says who you are, slow to anger, abounding in grace and compassion. Father, I acknowledge my own hardness of heart, how slow I am to trust that and obey that. In fact, on my own, I'm no better than Pharaoh. Father, you didn't leave us on our own. And man, in a room this size, we're all over the place this morning.
But each of us need to know the same truth. Maybe there's somebody in here this morning that has never bowed the knee to King Jesus, never, never believed in the Passover lamb slain for them and raised to give them new life. I pray that today would be the day as we are not guaranteed a tomorrow. I also pray for my family, my brothers and sisters in this room today that have, been, that have been experiencing the bondage of sin, the hard, stubborn heart that continues to chase their own way that leads to death and worship their other gods that only leads to disappointment and destruction and leaves us alone on an island. That your spirit, through the new heart that you've given us as your sons and daughters would convict us where we need to be convicted, comfort us where we need to be comforted, and evidence in us a godly sorrow that repents, that changes and turns from our sin to our living God. We can only do this in the name of the living God, Jesus Christ, slain on our behalf, rose to give us new life. And it's in that living name that all of God's people said, Amen.